0: A lot of startups, the title's a title. We don't care. We're going to give everyone VP of product or VP of design. And sometimes that stuff is great. But at the same time, we want people to understand kind of where they are in their career so that we can work together, we can focus on the right skill set development, and I can grow people quickly into bigger and bigger roles so that the people who've really come to know our business, our product, our customers can then transform themselves to become team leaders. And so that's beyond just kind of things that you got to do as a founder, including janitorial services from time to time.
1: Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about healthcare product management, also very highly regulated product management, and the difference in being a chief product officer founding your own company versus working in larger organizations. And I'm joined by Colin Anawadi, who's the chief product officer of First Dollar. Welcome, Colin.
0: Thanks, Melissa. And thanks for having me. Excited to talk about healthcare and finance today.
1: Yeah, it's going to be great. Colin and I know each other because we were both at Athena Health for a while, and then Colin left to start his own company called First Dollar. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Colin?
0: Yeah, happy to. So First Dollar Today is a health wallet platform. We provide our services to plan administrators. Plan administrators can include health plans, TPAs, financial institutions, or brokers. We're looking for a modern solution for designing and administrating health benefits. For consumers, we try to make it super simple to utilize those benefits. And the benefits I'm talking about is that tax acronym soup. So HSAs, FSAs, HRAs. But also some of the new benefits you're seeing health plans offer to help differentiate their plan or to hit some of those social determinants issues, whether it's paying for care, transportation for care, or just being able to afford some healthy groceries.
1: Cool. And how'd you come up with this idea?
0: Well, at Athena Health, part of our benefits were in HSA. Plus, we were kind of front row, seeing how providers were incentivized to get compensated and to help consumers change their behavior. And we thought the HSA was a very untapped way to help incentivize those under a high deductible plan to become more informed, to shop for their care, and hopefully also stretch their dollar by understanding the tax advantage nature of it and also the investability of those dollars that we're saving in our HSA. That's how we got started. Over the course of a few years, we pivoted and we realized that the reason so many people have a very consistent experience or a very similar experience and arguably a very broken experience is that the industry is largely powered by two 20-year-old kind of mainframe solutions. And that's when we kind of landed on the opportunity to be, sometimes we allude to ourselves as Stripe for healthcare, but that's exactly what we offer to the market as a platform of apps, widgets, and APIs to be able to offer these in benefits and not just in a better experience, but also embed them Where the member is already going, or the member prefers to go, such as your insurance portal, or your four hundred and one k portal, or somewhere else that you may already be managing both your finances and your healthcare.
1: So it took me a while personally to figure out what an HSA is, and we also have a bunch of people in Europe who are probably listening to this and going, "What?" (laughs) Because of American healthcare. But can you tell us a little bit about what is an HSA and like why would somebody want that?
0: Yeah. So there's a few account types, HSA included that are created by the U.S. government to help us and employers kind of augment cover care and and try to make it a little bit more affordable through kind of pre-tax contributions. The great thing about the HSA versus what a lot of people confuse it with is the FSA, is it's the only benefit you and I receive, whereby once I left Athena, I still kept my benefit. I was able to keep my HSA, I could keep putting money in it, I could keep, investing in it, whereas the FSAs and the HRAs are very much tied to your employment. So that's a good thing when the employer is putting contributions on it. It's a bad thing because it's just incentivizing you to spend it down to zero every year, or you lose that money. And so I'm a big fan of HSAs, and a lot of the work we do on the policy front is try to expand HSAs to more people. The code for HSAs was written back in 2006, and at the time, high-deductible was a a new concept. Now everyone has a high deductible and premiums are out of control. And so I do think, generally speaking, HSA should be something all Americans have access to.
1: Yeah, I really like that. I know for us, too, it's only available on high deductible plans. But depending on where you get the high deductible plan, for me, it's like $1,500 at Harvard. But For some other people in South Carolina, it's like $7,000, and that counts as high deductible. So I'm really appreciating your fight for getting expanded access to this, because I really do think it's a great tool.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's excluded from veterans. And if you're on Medicare, you can still use your HSA funds, you just can't contribute to it anymore. And we're having the silver tsunamis coming, and my mom included was still working up until last year. And so she was ineligible to continue to receive contributions to her HSA because she had the switch to Medicare. And even in a universal healthcare system or a Medicare for all, it's just unreasonable that the government can pay for everything from okay. assisted living to end of life care and palliative care. And so, again, I just generally think the HSA could be simplified and made more available to more people. And that would be a huge benefit to Americans.
1: So you have been working in healthcare now for a while. You've also got that financial side. These are two incredibly complex domains, tons of legislature, tons of compliance, tons of really knowing the nitty gritty about how all this works. How did you get up to speed on this domain?
0: So I had the benefit of working in healthcare for kind of the last six years. And previously, I'd spent some time in the prepaid industry. But a lot had changed. And so what you've seen is this rise in banking as a service. And that was an opportunity for us to get started offering financial products for much cheaper than what was required even 10 years ago to offer a card program or to integrate with a bank and work with a bank. And so there was a moment in time where I think now was a good time to go and try to attack the financial services companies that were historically offering HSAs. And honestly, how we got up to speed is just through what you expect of high capacity people. You got to go out there, you got to find the resources, you got to Google it. Uh, I talked with a lot of industry people at Visa, at MasterCard. There's nonprofit groups that help with the administration and the rules we have to follow around FSAs. So there was a lot of that that I did up front. And then as in my capacity as CPO, Assemble that content in a digestible format and bring it to the team and help them get educated. Through that process, it also helped us assemble our advisory board, which is a more formal cadence we do once a month with various industry experts. And that allows my team kind of front to have direct exposure, ask questions as we're building things. And that's been super helpful.
1: I love how you're touching on this and what you did to go learn. I think there's a really big debate in product management about do I need a domain expert? And I think we both probably worked with a bunch of domain experts who then became product managers afterwards in healthcare or other industries. But then there's also a question of like, do I need that person to be a subject matter expert? Or do I need just a great product manager? And can I teach them about domain expertise? But I'm running into that a lot with finding chief product officers. I've seen that a lot in training people to be product managers. What's your opinion on that? when might you need a specific domain expert and you train them in product? Or what do you think about with the flip of getting up to speed in your domain instead?
0: This is a fun question, and it's one we still debate internally on a roll by roll basis. As we were kind of chatting at the start of this podcast, first dollar kind of sits squarely at the intersections of finance and healthcare. Both of those industries on the surface I think you and I interact with them, everyone interacts with them, but they're really made up of a bunch of billion dollar segments. Within finance, you have banking and processing and investments and broker dealers and all these other smaller sectors, just like you do in healthcare. And so finding someone with expertise also means going down usually a couple of levels in certain sectors to find the people who really know the domain. And so that's been somewhat of a challenge for us, but I think we've done a pretty good job of taking a blended approach. And so I'm usually looking for one or the other. When it comes to product management, I think it's kind of understood you need to, especially in a startup, you need to have some experience of the trade. You've got to be able to kind of manage a backlog. You've got to know how to do problem discovery and work with customers. That's kind of a given. The question then becomes, what software are you managing? Is it consumer-facing? Is it administration-facing? Is it kind of core banking and core platform? And based on that orientation, that usually guides, are we looking for someone who knows consumer well? Are we looking for someone who knows benefits administration well? Or are we looking for somebody who does payments well? Generally, we do try to align them based on the product lines that they're kind of overseeing. And that's worked very well for us. One of our top product leads is... A great product manager, just kind of end to end, knows the skills. It was very new for her to join and do finance and to do healthcare. But, you know, when you hire startups, you're looking for people with drive and you're looking for people with that kind of unsatisfied curiosity to keep learning and keep growing. And I think if you have those combinations, plus you've taken one of your courses and you're a great product manager, you can come here and thrive. And I think that's true really for any other industry. Learning technology is. Hard enough. Applying it to different Industries is just a matter of getting up to speed and learning some of the nomenclature.
1: Very cool. I agree with that wholeheartedly too. I do think it's like if you got a great product manager, they're usually going to want to learn about new things, and that curiosity is key there. When you're thinking about designing your organization too, because you got that complexity and you've got a bunch of product managers who are learning these things for the first time, are you doing anything else to help them get up to speed? Like I've seen some places embed subject matter experts or they have an open reach to different advisors. What does your team have access to to learn more about their regulations and compliance and stuff?
0: Yeah, our VP of Compliance, and that's not a scary name for us, and it's not a scary guy. He's awesome. He helps run and facilitate a bunch of training programs that kind of touch up, because our financial products are regulated by the IRS, including the Department of Labor and other aspects. He has helped put together training programs that really kind of apply universally, whether you're in success, or you're building out some of these programs like a flexible spending account. So that's one thing we do, which is some formal training. The other thing we do is we join some of the nonprofits that are governing these programs. And with that comes a ton of, it is a little bit black and white and dry, but a ton of literature that people then have access to. And then the third piece I touched on earlier is just to your point, bringing in subject matter expertise. Either they were the right fit, right product management, right background, and we hire them on the team, or they're just an industry expert and we bring them into our formal advisory board or our formal technical board if you're an engineer, and we do those engagements with those folks on a monthly basis.
1: So you just said the VP of compliance is not scary, which I'm sure a bunch of people just listened to and went, our (laughs) VP of compliance is scary, you know? For our legal team, but I know that that's an issue for a lot of people who do work in heavily regulated areas. What do you guys do on your team to make the VP of compliance less scary and to make Beagle not feel like such a roadblock that they just say no to absolutely everything?
0: Great question and one that I'm really proud about because arguably anyone dealing with credit card data, you and I's social security number or birth date, we really all should be adhering to SOC 2 and HIPAA and all of those privacy safeguards because of the amount of hacks and data leaks that are happening. And so from Jump Street, we really incorporated security ops into our development, our definitions of done, so that culturally this stuff was one, never scary, but two, would never become a hindrance on velocity. We just addressed it, we embedded it in the culture, and we've done a similar thing with compliance. And what we really liked about Jeff, our VP of compliance, is he's the right kind of person where he doesn't want compliance to be in the way, but he, like we've done in the security ops, wants to embed it in the culture and have a, an equal parts of respect for it rather than fear. And we have a great partnership across product engineering, legal, and compliance to just kind of understand and obey the industry's two very regulated industries, just so we're not creating further versions of technical debt down the road that we've got to walk back on. And again, it's just been one of our pillars of culture, not just at a company level, but also in a product development at the product organization level, too.
1: What would be your advice for companies that are trying to set up a way for product development to work? They might be new to product development. I've worked with lots of banks, let's say, who are trying to navigate. We have this legal team over here. And we would love our product managers to be experimenting and talking to users. But what they tend to do is they always make them go ask legal for permission first. And then they're not sure like legal becomes a gatekeeper. They say no to everything or they can't get in touch with legal. And it says, hey, it has to end up on our desk and we have to review it later. What's your advice for setting up this working relationship you're talking about for those companies?
0: Yeah, when you are in industries where at least the company has a sensitivity to engaging end users directly, whether that's administrators or consumers, which, as you know, is so vital to building great products. I have a couple of ideas there. One is kind of ask for permission once to create a consumer advisory board or a patient advisory board and get some of your end users subscribe that way and just kind of design it with legal and compliance to where you have a safe forum that they've approved that consumers are aware of, that when they join, there's these certain functions and discussions are going to happen. That's thing one. And I think depending on the flexibility, you can kind of incorporate in your terms of service that from time to time, whether it's anonymous data or outreach from one of our team members, we're going to engage customers for feedback under the privacy rules and regulations that we follow. And so kind of blessing it and getting it incorporated from Jump Street is another approach that I think folks can do as you know it's not uncommon a lot of consumers want to give their opinion they want the product to get better and so i think it's generally just getting legal and compliance to understand the benefit to reaching out and also in ensuring that you're not going to violate the privacy especially as we talk about sensitive subjects like finance and healthcare
1: yeah i really like that i never thought about putting it into the terms of service but that's a really cool way to start that contract earlier you've now worked at smaller companies You worked at a large company. Athena was, for those people who don't know, it was like 5,000 people. And then you started your own company. What have you learned going big company versus small company, being a founder, CPO? What's the differences between those different scenarios and what was most surprising to you making that jump?
0: Yeah. So, you know, Athena Health was a great experience for me. I had never worked at a company that large. And what I got to learn during that process working with you was how do we chain commanders and tit and still manage and grow a zone and keep everyone kind of marching in the same order as I, as an entrepreneur and startup founder, abstracted myself away from being able to influence the individual teams. So that was something I really enjoyed learning. And I took a lot of things and applied that even in a smaller startup, especially now because it's a post-pandemic world and everyone's remote. And so I don't get the benefit of the side of the desk conversations like we used to when we did startups in the proverbial garage. And so having really good ways to communicate and simplify strategy and keep everyone marching in the same direction has been a really useful artifact that I've brought down from a big company to now our new startup. And so that's kind of thing one that big companies taught me that I am now applying in, in our hybrid startup. And I think this is a bit of a cliche, it's a generalized statement. But the biggest difference is just this push for velocity. And I don't mean that purely from an engineering perspective, which is a metric we often measure, but really from a whole company perspective, from engaging the customer to understanding the problem to experimenting with solutions and rapid prototyping to shipping a half-baked MVP and actually being proud about it, knowing it's not perfect, but really trying to keep those iteration and that feedback loop very tight very fast and trying to get to product market fit so that you get to the next inflection point and the startup can continue to grow and bigger businesses they don't always have to worry about that right the product's maturing with that processes around it are maturing you have a much bigger change management because your customer base is so big nobody wants to risk the golden goose that's laying all the revenue to then feed the R&D group so The incentives just kind of change. And I think that's the biggest difference on the surface. And not all big companies are slow in that way, but that is just naturally what happens. And it will certainly happen to First Dollar as we grow.
1: Yeah, as anything gets bigger, it always gets slower and it loses a lot of that juice that gives startups that speed and that edge to get to places. As You add more people, you add more complexity. That's always what happens. So you our chief product officer founder too. And it's a little bit not untraditional, but I will say what I typically see in startups, right, is you've got your CEO who kind of runs product for a while then decides they want to be a CEO and hires a product leader, right? But you and Jason were like, you're going to be CEO, I'll be chief product officer, which is cool. So when you're thinking about starting it from scratch as a chief product officer, what skills are you bringing in there? How are you thinking about structuring your team from the beginning? That's Different than maybe like a CEO trying to bring in somebody later. What edge do you think it gives you?
0: I'll toot my own horn just a little bit. And I don't usually like to brag about myself, but I've always been a builder by trade. So when we first got started, it was three of us and a desk that Techstars let us just use because we were alumni and it was a very nice gesture of theirs. But it was very much doing the rapid prototyping as a designer, doing some front end coding as a former front-end engineer and then handing that off to our now CTO to do the full prototype and so that's what I brought to the table as just an individual contributor product manager designer slash coder but having done the entrepreneurial thing Jason and I work well together on the strategic aspects the investment deck the opportunity the go-to-market strategy the fundraising and so I'm still supporting that but as a small team just trying to put together the early iterations of what it is we want to sell and market, I do have a little bit of a Swiss Army knife to my ability to do a lot of that in the early days.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important skill set. And I think you have such an interesting background because you can do that. Like I've seen you lead large teams before. And then with first dollar, you watch you jump in from the beginning, be able to do the prototyping, do those things. When you're thinking about growing this too, like, What's your next wave for First Dollar as you think about growing the product team? How's your position going to change? What are you going to keep doing? What have you been doing with your product management team, too, as they grow?
0: That's also something that I think about. And the opportunity that I think most startups afford people is just a lot of personal growth. And hopefully with that, too, also career growth. So. This was something else I was able to kind of take away from Athena, but we've instituted a lot of really great career pathing and giving people a little bit more perspective instead of a lot of startups, the title's a title, we don't care, we're going to give everyone VP of product or VP of design. And sometimes that stuff is great. But at the same time, we want people to understand kind of where they are in their career so that we can work together, we can focus on the right skill set development, and I can grow people quickly into bigger and bigger roles so that. The people who've really come to know our business, our product, our customers can then transform themselves to become team leaders. And so that's beyond just kind of things that you got to do as a founder, including janitorial services from time to time. That's also where I put a lot of my energy to make sure my team can grow as we grow. And so that's, again, just something that I spend a lot more energy on than I used to.
1: That's great it keeps them with the company, right? Giving them those career paths so that they can get into it. They see a place for them to go and they say you leveling up and then they can see that they can level up and they've got a lot of that space, which is nice. Yeah. So with First Dollar Two, because you're in such a highly regulated business, how was that getting started? Because I work with a bunch of founders through HBS and through other places. And when they go to tackle these industries, like this one, it's, You have to infiltrate banking. You have to infiltrate healthcare. They're so highly regulated. There's so many really large company players, not even to mention the government. Like, what was your biggest challenge getting this off the ground with all that complexity that goes into that?
0: Yeah, part of this will kind of feed into our pivot. So when we started First Dollar, the mission and vision, and and it's still a pillar of our chronic strategy, was to help people shop for care. That's a wide aperture. What you need is a lot different than what I need. And I think to do those kind of companies well, you're looking at a HEMS or a HERS or an OMADA, things that are very focused on a condition, and then kind of going deep and expanding that way, especially in a direct-to-consumer sense. And so when we were thinking about the HSA, it was from the lens of who is most incentivized to shop, and it's people on a high-deductible plan because they're covering so much out-of-pocket. And that was where we got started. What we didn't fully appreciate was how much that HSA and that high deductible plan was a real limiter, lots of tension, and us actually doing direct-to-consumer. You spend a dollar on Facebook, guess what? 20 or 30% of people are actually eligible because of that HDHP HSA contingency. When we wanted to offer an HSA, some of the incumbents we are now challenging had quarter million dollar startup fees, would take nine to 12 months to get us a card and market. And we said, somewhat foolishly, well, hey, there's all of this activity happening in banking as a service land. We can get started in a way that SaaS companies or companies that benefit from SaaS do, very little bit upfront, pay as you go, kind of a model, generally speaking. And we partnered with a great banking as a service provider. Then we kind of went from there. We got an HSA in market in four months. But it was a very minimum viable product. We didn't even fully account for things like overlapping tax years. And so Melissa has all the way up until April 15th to make a contribution for last year. So your out-of-box checking account that you get from a lot of banking as a service providers doesn't cut it. It doesn't account for those things. The account statements are factually wrong. The 1099s and 5498 tax forms don't work. and so somewhat by accident we realized we were having to build a lot more than we ever accounted for and that's also when we realized the opportunity that the market needed more platforms to get HSAs and FSAs fully stood up fully embedded fully white labeled all the things that we've kind of become accustomed to with most other services that's when we kind of pivoted and said you know what we need to be straight for healthcare there's a much bigger opportunity here than trying to build out a generic marketplace
1: Wow, that's such a great pivot into there, too. So who are your customers now that you're working with? Like, who are you selling these to?
0: Yeah, so end user or you and I, employees okay. and employers, but we don't sell direct to employers. We sell into health plans, third-party administrators or TPAs. And then financial institutions are actually a big player in consumer-directed health, surprisingly or not. Fidelity is one of the biggest HSA Providers because they pair that as a retirement product next to their 401k. But they also do FSAs and CDH and a bunch of other banks as well. So we do service financial institutions who are also looking for a better platform.
1: Nice. And when you're thinking about health tech going in the future, what makes you excited about it? Where do you see it evolving?
0: I will kind of answer that from the lens of FinHealth. And that's kind of how we describe what it is that we're focused on. There was a Survey that I think the Kauffman Group put out half of Americans are having a lot of trouble affording care, and 41% of Americans are in debt from a previous medical bill. And as you can probably gather, your uninsured adults, your African Americans and Hispanics, your lower income folks are just disproportionately affected. And so, what I think makes me most excited about what FinTech can do. For healthcare is start to address some of these health inequities, distribute the cost burden a little bit more, making it easier for employers and health plans and even my family to contribute to my health. One third of GoFundMe is medical debt, for example. And I think if we can tie all this together in a better way, then we can really start to incentivize material outcomes that folks can bank on, no pun intended. So that's where I think FinTech can go if we don't keep it segregated as just a financial instrument we tie it a little bit more close with the health plan for some of these social determinant issues helping to close care gaps and even in the kind of underbelly if you will of health care administration let's just clean up the paper let's streamline how we exchange data all of that i think is pretty related to finance as well
1: I'm hearing there's a lot of overlap in the healthcare billing, admin, that type of pieces that go back into the banking and different areas that way.
0: Yeah, I made a joke with my wife when we had our first baby that Amex and Amazon.com were the first to know. And there's something (laughs) to be said based on your card spending that it's even predictable, kind of what's coming in your life. I think Amex had the ability to predict divorces as well just based on where spending started occurring on the card. And it's shocking how little visibility health plans have in under-deductible spending and out-of-pocket spending. And it's just because this stuff is largely lived in completely separate silos. And so that's, I think, tying all this stuff together, financial wellness or health, is really going to be an exciting next decade, if not longer.
1: Where is it all living right now? Like when you say silos, where does all the information kind of break down and disseminate when it comes to healthcare?
0: The parallels between finance and healthcare have been striking. And we talked a little bit about the size and then the various sectors, but also the infrastructure and the data. There are certainly improvements being made. I know my banking app has gotten leaps and bounds better than even five years ago, but the data itself and the mainframe and the infrastructure is not all that dissimilar from healthcare. Unstructured data, it's trapped, it's siloed. Some of these administration providers have three or four systems just trying to make a card swipe work while also having a manual claim system. None of that data is consistent. And so it's, again, just a lot of the siloing problems that exist in healthcare also tend to exist in finance as well.
1: Okay. So a lot of stuff is just run on really old code, old code bases. They're not talking to each other. There's no transfer between companies or even within companies. So all of this creates those problems that we all see as consumers on the other end.
0: Yep. Exactly. You nailed it.
1: Well, seems to be a lot of (laughs) opportunity then for all of us in product management to fix that. And finally, to like my last question for you, we talked a little bit about what you're excited about with health tech, but. What about product management in health tech? What's the opportunity? What would you say to people out there who are like I'd love to do product management and try to help in healthcare or do something?
0: So I've been doing this for almost a decade now in healthcare and now venturing in finance and I think the thing that I tell everyone whether we're recruiting or it's another founder that I'm working with the opportunities are certainly endless and abound. The question is kind of like where do you start? To get that flywheel going so that you can continue to work closely with your customers, especially those enterprise customers, and continue to evolve both your roadmap and your product offering. And you know me pretty well now. I don't like to be the burning bush. I don't think we're going to have one singular product that's going to solve everyone's problem. We're most likely going to get it wrong on the, the first day that we start with it. And so I just think there's an op for a really good product manager who's not stuck on one idea, but can really engage the enterprises that can, whether it's finance or healthcare, there's just a ton of problems to be solved. And sometimes the biggest challenge is just trying to figure out where to start. I think that's where, if you're new to healthcare, you can certainly be overwhelmed. If you've been in it for a long time, you might be a little bit jaded that you can make a change. But I think right level of optimism, right level of curiosity and drive, there is just a lot of room to put on your product hat and make things better. And sometimes, too, I think just managing your expectations. I used to talk very naively in 2013 about disrupting healthcare. That's a crazy statement to make in retrospect. And so I just also try to manage people's reality there. It's just a huge industry.
1: Yeah, you're not going to be able to tackle it all at once. But I like the enthusiasm that people bring that want to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Colin, for joining us. If people want to learn more about First Dollar or maybe even come work for you, where can they learn?
0: Yeah, great. Firstdollar.com. And then I'm probably more active on LinkedIn, Colin.Anawadi. Then I sometimes post on Twitter, which is just at Colin, my first name. I got pretty lucky in 2007 Damn, they got really to get lucky that. On
1: that.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's amazing.
1: Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for listening to the Product Thinking Podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another Dear Melissa where we answer all of your product questions. So please submit them to DearMelissa.com and we will see you next Wednesday.